Some people just adore martinis Others love iced tea In Venice they all go for Bellinis But coffee, ah, that's for me I've tasted every kind of brew At every coffee shop Some were good and some were great But this one was the top Hi, this is Sandy Kay. I'm the host of A Breath of Fresh Air. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with the host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Lisa Hurwitz, the director and producer of The Automat, a documentary film that is a wonderful, loving, nostalgic, sentimental tribute to Horn and Hard Art, which at one time was the largest restaurant chain in the United States, and they operated automats. And for anyone who doesn't know what an automat was, these were restaurants where people deposited nickels into slots, which opened up little windows, and behind the windows, they had all this delicious food and drink and coffee. And it was just a wonderful experience, and we're going to talk about all of this. Somehow, Lisa managed to get Mel Brooks to participate on screen in her film, along with Carl Reiner, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Colin Powell, and Elliot Gould. I have to ask about all of this. I discovered Lisa's film almost by accident. I was scrolling through Amazon Prime, I looked at it, I bought it, I loved it. I immediately asked Lisa to be a guest on the podcast, and she agreed. And you know that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. But in this one instance, I decided to make an exception. I'm featuring instead underneath this introduction the song At the Automat, written and performed by Mel Brooks himself, who still got it at age 96. So Lisa Hurwitz, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Robert. And I have to apologize to everybody from the 198 countries that listen to your podcast where Yadamat is not yet available. Well, maybe we can make it available there. How about that? That would be great. It would be. <laughs> right now, it's just the U.S. and Canada. All right. Well, we're going to spread this around the world. That's the deal. Great. I have to start off by asking you, what possessed you to make this film? Mel Brooks said you look 11 years old. I think you look a little bit older than that, but you certainly weren't somebody that went to the automats when they were in vogue. So tell me, how did this happen? Well, I have very 
fond memories of my college cafeteria, which was a place that I would go to, you know, in between classes. And it was such a warm, welcoming place with pretty decent food. And I was coming from a middle school, high school experience that I think was a bit clicky. So this experience in college was very refreshing. I was just curious to know more about where my school cafeteria came from. So in our school library, upon some research, I came across the automat in either you know, an article or a book. And that was, you know, almost 10 years ago. Crazy. I mean, you know, for anybody that's that's listening here that doesn't know about the Automat, Horn and Hard Art was this remarkably successful restaurant chain. As we said, it only operated in two cities, Philadelphia and New York. The last of the Automats was closed. It had to be what, 20, 30 years ago by now? 1991. And I remember that automat. That was the only one that I was ever in. It was on 42nd Street and 3rd Avenue in New York City. And it was uh, such an extraordinary experience to go in there. I, I was only in the automat a couple of times before it closed, but you just remembered it because it was just so different from every other restaurant. Well, I never had the great fortune of going there. So I'm very envious of you, even if it was only a couple times that you went. All right. You got to tell me, how did you get Mel Brooks and all these other superstars to participate in this film? Mel was not somebody who I knew at all. And we also were in very different circles. I was a 35 millimeter film projectionist at a movie theater in a very small town, Olympia, Washington, my college town. And we would have special guests come through the theaters for events. One of them was Carl Gottlieb, who wrote the film Jaws. So Carl and I got to know each other a little bit. I was driving him around and in charge of his hospitality. We became Facebook friends. When my Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the film popped up in his Facebook newsfeed, he sent me a Facebook message saying, how he was excited that I was to learn that I was working on this film. And he asked if it would be all right for him to tell his friend Mel Brooks about it. And that was how I got introduced to Mel and Mel reeled in Carl Reiner. But I didn't have connections to any of these people that were in the film. I just reached out to everyone and, you know, made my case. And I got a lot of uh, either rejections or, you know, people ignoring me. But in the end, you know, this group of people came through and they're a pretty good group, if I may say so myself. Oh, my God. You had such unbelievable guests that were in this film. OK, we got to go back to Mel because he's kind of the centerpiece of the film. He's so funny. I mean, even at this point, he's got such charisma. And I'm just wondering, you know, what were the arrangements that you made with him? Did you film him on multiple occasions? Did you only get him one time? What was that like? I interviewed him one time in person. And then he was in charge of, you know, his recording, getting, you know, getting his, you know, vocals done. And the the orchestra we recorded separately. So there were like two orchestra recording you know, things happening. One Mel Brooks by himself in the recording studio and the other, all the musicians separate. And then there were phone calls between me and Mel that I 
recorded and we use one of those at the beginning of the movie and you know we we still are in touch I you mostly uh email and text his assistants but occasionally I'm on the phone with him uh he also did record a new introduction to the movie that is on our DVD extras but that's that's the extent of it <laughs> this is not not it's not a little either it's still remarkable but you touched upon the this song tell me how the song came to be did he volunteer to do this did you ask him to do a song i asked him if he would record a song that i would have written for him he could just approve it and then all he had to do was record it and he said okay but then he came back at me a couple of weeks later with a song or the beginnings of a song that he was singing to me over the phone and he just kept working at it and pretty quickly he had you know written the song i mean it's a terrific song his lyrics are always wonderful it's just a remarkable thing that you got him to do that. Okay, I want to talk about a few of the other stars, and then I want to go back and talk about the movie itself. Tell me about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, that was a lucky get. She actually said no the first time that I asked. I sent her a letter in the mail and just to the U.S. Supreme Court with her name on it, and it got to her. And then she sent me back a letter in the mail saying she had very fond memories, but she didn't think she had enough to say. And upon my second request, she said, all right. And it was a very fast interview. We use almost everything she said in the movie. And it was really, you know, once in a lifetime experience to, you know, be in a press room in the U.S. Supreme Court and, you know, not just sitting with any Supreme Court justice, but, you know, RBG. I read somewhere, tell me if this is true, that the whole interview was like four minutes or something like that. That's all the time that she had to give you. I do think that it was about that short. Yeah, it was really fast. But I was very grateful that she didn't cancel because it was the week that she had spoken up against Donald Trump during his first presidential campaign when she was getting extreme heat in the media for, you know, overstepping by, you know, taking a position on, you know, the, the presidential election. And so I, you know, thought she was actually going to cancel the whole interview and she didn't. So I was just happy to get something. And I, it was more that she really, it was a, it was a very good interview. Oh, it was terrific. I mean, and the and she, like the others that you had in the film, had these wonderful memories of the automat and horn on hard art. I, I want to talk about one more celebrity in here, Colin Powell, who talked in the film about the fact that he grew up in the South Bronx. They never went to restaurants when he was a child. This was the only restaurant that his family ever went to. Because one of the great things about the Automat, about Horn and Hardart, was the diversity and the fact that it was open for all different types of people and backgrounds and religions and, and the like. So tell me a little bit about his interview and his participation. Colin Powell was somebody who I found on Wikipedia as a 
famous person from New York because they have lists on that website about famous people from any city pretty much. And I sent him a letter asking him if he ever went there, just like I had sent RBG a letter asking her if she had ever gone to the automat to his fan mail address. And he sent me back a letter saying something similar that he didn't think that he would have enough to say to make it worth my while. So he was so gracious though, you know, after he eventually said yes, he gave me a lot of time and I went to his offices in Virginia. He had like a bright, I can't remember if it was a bright red Corvette or if it was bright yellow, but he had like a very, uh, you know. He had a sports car. He had a sports car and he had a special spot because it was like a shared office building where there were lots of tenants there, but he had his own special, you know, like General Powell spot right in front of the, like if you were the pastor's wife or something, you would have a special parking spot. Like he just got to park where no one, anyways, it was just, you know, that was a site. And he was just so nice to my crew. Also, I really remember that. Like he made everybody feel really special and his team was nice. He did tease me quite a bit during the interview, as you can see in the film. He has a sense of humor. I never would have thought that he was going to, you know, pass away. He was so totally full of life uh, that so that that was really a shock when I, you know, learned that 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 happened. Right. He had one very funny line that he threw in where he was basically kind of asking you to move along because he had the Colombian ambassador in the other room that he had to go see. I don't know if he made that up to impress you or if it was real, but it was a very funny line. He was serious. He's a really funny, charming guy. I He just had this really kind of weird effect on me. Like I felt like, wow, this he could have been a president. He just was so, he was just so cool. And like, he, he was just unbelievable. <laughs> wow. He came across that way. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music. Project Grand Slam burns down the house virtuoso musicians and such a great band you can stream live at steel stacks on spotify apple amazon or any of the other streaming platforms and you can download it from the pgs store the links are all in the show notes to this episode please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet you can do so and you can listen to our 100 plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking.
You know, the nice thing about the film, everybody that you interviewed in the film, and you had some wonderful other people, non-celebrities that were throughout the film, there was such reverence, such um, fealty to the the restaurant chain, to to the whole concept. And I loved the part that you brought out about how the uh, founders of the chain, Mr. Horn and Mr. Hardart, were very much interested in creating the right kind of ambiance, the right kind of atmosphere for people. They wanted the food to be excellent food. Tell us a little bit about what you learned as you went through this process about Horn and Hardart. Well, I didn't realize in the beginning that they were going to be such an exceptional business. You know, I think at the beginning, I thought that it was kind of glitzy and interesting that there was this restaurant chain that was in old Hollywood movies and that celebrities and, you know, as Mel Brooks would say, bums uh, uh, alike would all go to. But, you know, over time, I definitely realized, especially by like talking to people, because it's not by reading the articles or the the books or chapters and books that were available at the time when I started working on this, you wouldn't have known just by reading those things that it was such a revered institution and how much it had really touched people's lives. That was sort of a piece that wasn't yet part of the history. Like even the Horn and Hard Art historian, Alex Schuldiner, who's in the movie, who wrote the PhD dissertation about the automat, after he saw the movie for the first time, the thing that he said to me was, I, I didn't know about this, this piece of the, the story, you know, the, the oral history and that all, all these people all around the United States and even all around the world, that they, there were these shared stories. And that's something really unique and special about the automat. It's true. But I have come to really, you know, admire the sort of, you know, rep reputation that they were able to create for themselves. And I do hope that when people see this film, like one of their takeaways might be, wow, I'm inspired to do business in a way that's doing good by my workers and by my customers. I want to do business that is innovative and adding positivity and, you know, good things in people's lives. The Automat really took care of people's basic needs, but it did so in such a dignified way. You know, you, you would look forward to going there. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I just need to get some food in my system. And no, I mean, it was, yes, you, you got your basic need taken care of, but in a really nice way that was available for everyone. It shows, I think, that, you know, in a business that's so pedestrian is, in a sense, you know, a restaurant business, so many restaurants out there, so many different chains, but this one, they ran it differently. It was an ethical chain. It, it was a chain that engendered loyalty from the employees, from the customers, from everybody. I love the part where you brought out that uh, it was, I think, Mr. Horn uh, was there and wanted all the employees that had problems to go to him so that he could help 
and they had you know annual get-togethers and Christmas parties and events of that sort for the people that worked there. And the at the end of the day, even though there was an attempt to unionize, the employees rejected the idea of being union because they loved what they had already. I mean, you just don't find that any longer in these days in most businesses. Well, I do think that a lot of employees were probably, you know, very content with things as is. We didn't really get into it during the film because we couldn't get into everything. But eventually, the various types of employees within the company, because there were, you know, different types of unions for different type of types of workers, over the years, eventually, the Horned Hearted employees did start going union. And that was something eventually that the, the workers pushed through. But they were a very paternalistic company. And for sure, they took very good care of their employees, even before they had a union. You know, I love the little vignette. Uh, Mel Brooks was talking about the lady that made change that gave nickels out, okay? Because people would walk in with a dollar. They'd go up to this window and this one woman would give them 20 nickels in exchange for the dollar. And apparently, why don't you tell the story about how what Mel Brooks talked about there when she was making the change? So there was a very famous character in the automat who was the nickel thrower, which was a person who you would hand your dollar to and without counting, without looking, she would just grab 20 nickels and give them to you. And she was really fast and she never made a mistake. And she sat at a little booth and Mel really just remembers her so beautifully, the way he describes her. And Mel did it, you know, in one take. <laughs> without it being, you know, scripted. So it's it's a special moment in the film, for sure. It was a special moment in the film. And I remember he, he spoke about her as if she was a magician or magical, you know, the fact that this woman all day long, and, and you had somebody else who was talking about how many nickels she put out a day it was like 14,000 nickels or something like that. She never made a mistake. How crazy is that? One theme between people's stories when they talk about the automat, especially people who went there as kids, is that it was magical. Whether it was the experience of getting your, you know, nickels handed to you by the nickel thrower, or whether it's getting to, you know, choose what you wanted to eat by looking in the windows and then the food would sort of just magically appear. People talk about how when they were kids, they would sort of just stand there waiting for that split second where you could kind of see someone behind the window when they were putting in a new food item. If you just waited and waited, you could see it for a split second. So it was a really magical place for a lot of people, particularly children. It was. And uh, at this point, of course, there is no more automat uh, anywhere. You did find some people that had some, mem not only memories, but you had some memorabilia of the automat. How did you find those people that had taken away some of the uh, the actual uh, you know, mementos and, and uh, items from the restaurant? How did you find those people? It was just following a trail. You know, one person would point me 
to another or even just phone books and it was not a fast process. And, you know, in some cases, maybe the person who introduced me to somebody else, maybe they didn't make the cut, but the person they introduced me to did because we filmed a lot more interviews than what we were actually able to use. But, you know, it it wasn't, it was not a clean, quick process. There was a lot of relationship building going on at a certain point you know, people, I think, mm, took me a little more seriously. Um, You know, when I first started this project, I was, you know, a college student, and it was me and my friends, we were like the crew. But the production looked very different by the end. And I was able to get people to do things earlier on as well as you can see you know we've got quite the the cast but it definitely i think became easier after i gained some credibility so you know <laughs> it's the film's really taken off at this point so you did a kickstarter is that how you funded this whole thing the kickstarter kind of kickstarted us it didn't you know fund the entire project, but it was so important for us to do that Kickstarter. It helped us, you know, get the funding to start. And it also helped us create, you know, a community and a base of support. And, you know, the Kickstarter did help us find people who we didn't know all over the country who, you know, they're still with us. they're on our newsletters, they're on our, you know, social media pages, they're even our friends. And so I definitely would recommend Kickstarter to anybody who's interested in, you know, trying to get a project going. I will say that it is a ton of work and I'm not necessarily like enthusiastic about doing it again for myself, but I think that it's a good I know a lot of people keep going back to Kickstarter because it's so effective. So, you know. So you got additional financing elsewhere. Is that the idea after the Kickstarter? Absolutely. Yeah. The Kickstarter, you know, I think that raised like 50 or 60,000. No, I was wondering how you got your film to be placed in Amazon Prime. Well, you need to have an aggregator. An aggregator is sort of like a middleman between you and Amazon, because unfortunately, Amazon doesn't take films from filmmakers directly. So this, whatever company you're working with, they will, you know, submit the the film. And, um, you know, you've got to provide the, you know, the subtitles and the descriptions and you know the marketing images or whatever and then you know amazon will take it from there okay good so what's next for lisa herwitz there is an awards campaign that i'm currently running for the automat and we're sort of still going pretty strong we're doing a lot of screenings a lot of travel and I do on the back burner have another uh, documentary and a romantic comedy that I'm 
developing. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, that next chapter, but I'm still pretty focused right now on the automat because I'm also the distributor of the film. You're the chief cook and bottle washer. Good for you. That's funny. Well, it's a it's a wonderful film. I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed the subject matter. I love the way that you presented it. So congratulations to you. And I wish you all the best going forward with this film and everything else you're doing. Thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate your interest, your enthusiasm for our documentary. Terrific. And now we're going to listen again to the song that started off this episode. This is Mel Brooks doing At the Automat. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. They all go for Bellini's, but coffee, ah, that's for me. I've tasted every kind of brew at every coffee shop. Some were good. And some were great, but this one was the top. There was nothing like the coffee at the Automat. Its aroma and its flavor were supreme. From a silver dolphin spout, the coffee poured right out. Not to mention, at the end, a little spurt of cream. There was nothing like the coffee at the Automat. Nothing fancy or pretentious like today. You have to understand they had no latte grande, no quizzical baristas in your way. There was nothing like the coffee at the Automat. You would find a seat, hang up your coat and hat. And for just a shiny nickel, your taste buds you could tickle. With that wonderful, magnificent, unbelievable, awesome coffee at 